Our nation's history and direction often seem to pivot around key events and leaders that are not only significant at the time, but have far-reaching consequences for the future. Some examples are George Washington in the American Revolution, Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War, Pearl Harbor and Franklin Roosevelt, Martin Luther King in the Civil Rights Movement. In our generation, it is the events surrounding the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, the effects of which are still unfolding in the daily news today. Today, in our study of the book of Acts, starting in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and continuing through chapter 7, Luke brings us to such an event in the life of the church and in God's story of the redemption of mankind. The events of our passage today will cause the church to stretch beyond Jerusalem and the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, and will also introduce us to Saul, who after his conversion is known as Paul. And he will lead the charge in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles of the Roman Empire beyond the land of Israel. The expansion of the gospel, gospel is instigated by Stephen the martyr in chapter 7, by Philip the evangelist in chapter 8, by the conversion of Saul the Pharisee in chapter 9, and the salvation of Cornelius the Roman centurion in chapter 10. These four men, along with Peter, will contribute in great measure to the expansion of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stephen the martyr comes first. He is the catalyst for the advance of the gospel, and the story is a tragic one, entailing the violent death of a faithful witness for Christ. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, from Acts chapter 6, verse 8, to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. 69 verses. The core of this section is not Stephen's murder, but rather his speech. It is the longest speech in the book of Acts. That indicates how important Luke thinks that it is. There are three parts to today's message. Part 1, Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15, are about the charges brought against Stephen. Part 2, Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 53, Stephen's biblical defense, his speech. And then part 3, Acts 7, verses 54 to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, the murderous response. So let's start. Chapter 6, verse 8, charges brought against Stephen. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen is full of grace and power, Luke tells us. In verses 3 and 5 of chapter 6, we are told Stephen is also full of faith, wisdom, and the Holy Spirit. And is selected by the apostles to serve the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jewish widows in the church in Jerusalem. The power of the Holy Spirit in him results in Stephen doing great signs and wonders among the people. He's the first person outside of the apostles who has done such miracles in the book of Acts. As it has with the apostles, the miracles which attest to the authority of God and the genuine truth of the disciples' message about Christ generate strong opposition from the Jews. But this time, instead of the Jewish leaders being immediately involved, members who belonged to at least one, but perhaps as many as five synagogues are involved in debating with Stephen about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9 of chapter 6. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, 
rose up and disputed with Stephen. The opposition is coming from the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews who now live in Jerusalem. They have come from North Africa and the regions of Turkey. The Apostle Paul's hometown was Tarsus, a city in the region of Cilicia in what is today modern-day Turkey. It is possible that Paul, prior to his conversion, was part of this synagogue that was opposing Stephen. You can imagine these Jews who were not born in Jerusalem or Israel, but traveled here and moved here to be closer to the temple and to the religious center of Jewish life were fiercely loyal to the law of Moses and to the temple. Apparently, Stephen is more than holding his own in this debate. For the Jews decided to trump up some charges in an effort to put Stephen on the defensive. Look at verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that's referring to the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen is accused of teaching that Jesus would destroy the temple in Jerusalem and change the law of Moses. Well, what did Jesus say about these things? And is what Stephen's saying consistent with what Jesus said? The specific charges against him are stated in the last verse, the last part of verses 13 and 14. The first charge is speaking against this holy place. In the context, this is referring directly to the temple in Jerusalem where Jesus was standing in John chapter 2, having just thrown out the money changers and cleansing the temple. Jesus said, in John 2, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it in three days? Well, the Jews took what Jesus said very literally, not realizing what the Apostle John said immediately after, where he tells us in John 2, verse 21, but he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus was speaking about himself as the place where God's people meet the presence of God, thus fulfilling the purpose of the old temple to provide a place where a sinful people could meet with a holy God. Now that place, this side of the cross, is Jesus. It was Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, when speaking of himself said, Something greater than the temple is here. This is why the curtain separating the outer room of the temple from the Holy of Holies, the inner room of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom when Christ died on the cross. Jesus, as our high priest, entered into the true Holy of Holies, into God's presence in heaven, making intercession for the sins of His people, having been sacrificed for the sins of the world. As a result... Even though in the past God's people came to the temple to come together and meet God, now the meeting place with God 
is with Christ Himself. The second charge is Stephen claimed Jesus would change the law. That Jesus would change the customs of Moses. Jesus was accused of disrespect for the law, for example, in relation to the Sabbath day. Well, what Jesus did was contradict the traditions that the Jewish religious leaders had built up around the law of Moses, kind of like fences to keep people from getting too close. But Jesus never failed to keep the law, and he honored it in every way. He kept it perfectly. Jesus made his relation to the, relationship to the law very clear, clear in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. When he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus taught the temple and the law would be superseded, not destroyed or abolished. They were both gifts from God that find their God-intended fulfillment in Jesus Christ, in the Messiah. This did not diminish the temple or the law, but magnifies their importance as they gloriously point to Christ. There is no indication in the text of Scripture that Stephen taught anything other than different than Jesus. Rather, Stephen, as we shall see in his sermon, points to Jesus as the one in whom all the Old Testament is fulfilled. That includes the temple and the law. Which brings us to part two, Stephen's biblical defense, his speech starting in chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Now having been dragged in front of the Jewish council, the same council that put Christ on trial, the same council that twice in Acts chapter 4 and 5 passed judgment first on Peter and John and then had the apostles beaten, they essentially asked Stephen, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Well, Stephen does not answer their question directly until very late in his speech. Instead, he spends the next 45 verses presenting a selective survey of how God has worked in relating to and redeeming his people throughout the history of Israel. Stephen's message is much different than the previous speeches recorded in Acts. Stephen does not mention Jesus by name and only twice makes reference to him. Stephen never mentions the resurrection of Jesus and he never offers a call to repentance or the promise of forgiveness of sins. Stephen is a witness for Christ, but he is also a witness to Jewish unbelief and their rejection of the gospel. What Stephen does do in this speech is emphasize two things in particular both related to the charges leveled against him. The first theme you see repeated is that God's presence is anywhere God decides to reveal himself to his people. He is not found only or even primarily in the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem that succeeded it. Stephen makes the case that God will not be contained in a house made by human hands but rather God comes to His people through relationships with them rooted and built on His promises, on His covenants with them, and mediated by God's chosen leaders who serve and intercede for God's people according to God's purpose and plan. The second theme you will see repeated in Stephen's message is a historical and demonstrated pattern of rebellion and unbelief to God's promises 
and God's chosen leaders by the nation Israel. It is this unbelief and rebelliousness that leads those who oppose Christ and the gospel to wrongly interpret the meaning of the temple and the law, which explains their opposition to God's Savior and His witnesses. It is this fundamental confusion about the true meaning of the Old Testament promises, sacrifices, and laws, and their unwillingness to accept the truth that fuels their anger and hostility to Christ and to His church and exposes their own disobedience to God's law. Stephen will now speak of the Old Testament, the temple and the law, in a deeper and more significant way, a way that foreshadows the Apostle Paul's epistles and understanding of the Gospel and how it fits with the revelation of God in the Old Testament. He will do this through four examples. Through Abraham, Joseph, Moses, where he will spend most of his time, and then he finishes with David and Solomon. First, we have the example of Abraham, starting in verse 2. Follow along with me as I read. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. That's in modern-day Iraq. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob of the twelve patriarchs, Jacob's twelve sons, the twelve patriarchs of Israel. Stephen begins his speech with Abraham, the founding father of Israel, and Stephen right off the bat says God appeared to Abraham when he was still in Mesopotamia, before where there was even a temple in existence. Abraham was outside of the land God had promised. God was present with Abraham in Mesopotamia. Then in verses 2, 3, and 4, Stephen reminds them of the specific promise given to Abraham by God to give them a land which he says God has fulfilled for they are now living in the land God spoke of. Stephen reminds them that when God promised Abraham this land, Abraham did not own a single foot of it. And neither did Abraham have any children. Yet God promised Abraham a land with many descendants. Descendants like the sand of the seashore. Also in verses 3 and 4, Stephen puts stress on the fact that Abraham believes in the promise of God and follows God to where he is leading him. When God says go, Abraham goes. Even though God makes it clear his family will spend 400 years as slaves in a strange land before they return to the promised land to worship him there. That brings us to the example of Joseph. Verses 9 to 16. Verse 9, And the patriarchs, 
jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. In the story of Joseph, Stephen introduces the theme of Israel rejecting and rebelling against the men whom God raised up to deliver his people. Joseph is that leader that his brothers, the twelve patriarchs, the sons of Jacob, have rejected. The eleven brothers decide to sell the other one, Joseph, into slavery and ship him off to Egypt, never to be seen again. Their motive, the text tells us, is jealousy. The very same reason given for the Jewish council's arrest of the apostles in Acts chapter 5. And while the brothers meant it for evil, God sovereignly meant it for good. For God set in motion a series of events that result in the deliverance of Joseph's family from the famine that was to come in Canaan. But ironically, they will be delivered by the very one who they had rejected and sold into slavery. There will be deliverance of God's chosen people through the one they rejected. A clear foreshadowing of the deliverance of believers through the rejection of Christ by His own people. And Stephen makes very clear in verse 9 that even though Joseph was in Egypt, God was with him and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh. There was no temple and they were not in the promised land, but God was present with Joseph and his chosen people when they were in Egypt. That brings us to the example of Moses. It's the longest example given by Stephen, running from verse 17 to verse 43. It's appropriate that it's the longest since the Jews were accusing Stephen of speaking against the law of Moses and blaspheming him. Stephen divides his comments on Moses into three sections, each representing 40 years of Moses' life. The first section covers Moses' life from birth to 40 years of age. It starts in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. 
with Moses, the promise God had made to Abraham was now tantalizingly close. The years of slavery in a strange land were about to end, and the entry into the land God promised Abraham seemed close at hand. In verse 20, Stephen mentions Moses is beautiful in God's sight. He's not referring to his physical appearance, but to the fact that Moses is approved and accepted by God. God's hand is upon him. And this is seen in the miraculous preservation by the hand of God and the irony that by Pharaoh's order, Moses should have been murdered as a baby, but God delivered him by bringing him into Pharaoh's house for safekeeping and protection. The point is Moses is born as a baby in Egypt, yet God is present with him there. Stephen now turns to the second 40 years of Moses' life, starting in verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. What explains this drastic change in Moses' life from living in Pharaoh's court to living in the desert by the Dead Sea? It is Moses' rejection by the Israelites to whom he came to give salvation, to rescue them, to free them from the oppression of their Egyptian masters. In Moses' first attempt to draw near and deliver his people from slavery, he is rejected. And even more than that, threatened with death by the very people he came to save. This act by Moses is a preview of what is to come. It pictures what God will do 40 years later, only on a grander scale. Moses defended the Israelite by killing the Egyptian in an act of justice. In so doing, Moses identifies with Israel and presents himself as the one through whose hand deliverance will come. And as far as the rhetorical question of who made Moses ruler and judge, the answer is and will be God himself. But the reality of that will have to wait until the proper time for 40 more years. Which brings us to the last 40 years of Moses' life outlined starting in verse 30. Now when Moses, when, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, 
and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. The appearance of God to Moses in the burning bush took place in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, the very place where God would later give Israel His redeemed people His law. In this place, an angel, the angel of the Lord, God Himself appeared to him. It was here that Moses heard the voice of the Lord, and it is called holy ground. This is a holy place. Again, God's presence is here, but it has nothing to do with the temple, and again, it is outside of the promised land. This illustrates an enduring truth in God's Word. The gracious presence of God is what makes a place holy or sacred. And notice again the promise given by God to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is front and center as Stephen quotes directly from Exodus 3. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Stephen continues in verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. He received the Ten Commandments, the law. Forty years prior, Moses had been rejected as ruler and judge. But now God sends him as ruler and redeemer. The title Redeemer is used in the Old Testament of God, particularly in connection with the exodus from Egypt. In the New Testament, this word is frequently used of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. It is clear God's deliverance of His people from slavery through Moses foreshadows the greater and final deliverance of God's people from slavery to sin through Christ. Stephen highlights that Moses performed signs and wonders in Egypt like Jesus did in the Promised Land. Then, quoting Deuteronomy 18, Stephen highlights that Moses was a prophet and points out that a greater prophet is yet to come, and that prophet is Christ, as Peter has already told us in Acts chapter 3. Even as Stephen holds up Moses as ruler and redeemer, he does so in a way that points to Jesus Christ as Messiah. Verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey Him, but thrust Him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of of their hands. The works of their hands. A common term in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and Isaiah, for an idol. The works of their hands. Verse 42. 
But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech, a false god, and the star of your god Rephem, another false god, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. They, that is Israel, those delivered from slavery in Egypt, those redeemed from slavery in Egypt, were unwilling to be obedient. They refused to obey Moses in the wilderness. They rejected Moses just like the fighting Israelites in Egypt had done earlier. Just as Joseph's brothers rejected him, so now the Israelites leaving Egypt rejected Moses as prophet, redeemer, and ruler. Their source of their rejection ran so deep that Stephen says, in their hearts they returned to Egypt. And it is their hearts God is concerned about. Stephen quotes from Amos 5, starting halfway through verse 42, and basically says, sacrifices in the tabernacle or temple are no guarantee of divine blessing and no protection from the judgment of God for worshiping other gods and the sin of idolatry and for rejecting God's mediator. Stephen now moves on to his fourth example and discusses the life of Israel beyond the wilderness, and does so by drawing attention to both the tabernacle that was in the wilderness and the temple in Jerusalem that succeeded it, the very temple that King David wanted to build, but that his son, King Solomon, did build. The example of David and Solomon starting in verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness, the tabernacle, in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers when they entered the Promised Land. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place, that's referring to the temple, a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house, a temple, for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? Verse 48 is the key summary verse that tells us all about Stephen is saying. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. And he backs up this statement by giving a quote from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61. Stephen is not criticizing the temple here. He's not criticizing it for what it is. It was good. It was commanded by God. But he is criticizing for how these Jews viewed it and how they used it and how they idolized it. Notice, it is a house made by hands. They had turned it into an idol because of how their hearts approached the temple. 
implied by Stephen, but not directly stated, is that in John chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 2, in 1 Peter chapter 2, and in Revelation 21, the temple finds its fulfillment in Jesus and in His church. The Apostle John, in Revelation 21 verse 22, says it most clearly when describing the new Jerusalem in God's kingdom. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Just as Moses and his ministry surrounding the Exodus served as a pattern of the final deliverance that God would accomplish for his people in Christ, so also the tabernacle and temple pointed beyond themselves to something enduring for eternity. Now we come to the key passage regarding, regarding the charge that Stephen was oppressing the law of Moses or he was opposed to the law of Moses. Stephen's been laying the groundwork for this in both the rejection of Joseph and the rejection of Moses by the people of Israel. He now brings it to a pointed climax. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, referring to Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He says your predecessors killed the prophets and you are just like them. For you murdered the Messiah and you received the law, but you did not keep it. You see, they needed a righteous one to save them. They needed a perfect law keeper to pay the penalty for their sins, to die for their sins in their place. Yet they betrayed Him. To be stiff-necked is to be stubbornly refusing to change. These people are unwilling to repent. He next calls them uncircumcised in heart and ears, which is to call them unbelieving Gentiles who are godless dogs on the earth in the eyes of the religious Jews. Stephen is innocent of blaspheming Moses and God and of speaking against the temple and the law of Moses, but his accusers are the ones that are guilty. That brings us to part three, the murderous response, starting in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. It means sawn in two. It means to have their hearts ripped open. They are furious. And they ground their teeth at Him. And He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. 
Notice that none of the opponents of Stephen inquire about the way of salvation. There's not one mention of it. Stephen's opponents are full of rage. But in contrast, Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. The vision of Christ at the right hand of God was a great comfort for Stephen. But the words he spoke concerning what he saw, especially the reference to the Son of Man, referring to Israel's Messiah from the book of Daniel chapter 7, seems like it's the last straw for his accusers. Mob justice takes over. It's like a lynch mob from the Wild West. This is frontier injustice just outside the gates of the city. Stephen's final words, the words of the first Christian witness to die for Christ sound very familiar to us. They are similar to the words of the Lord on the cross. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, Stephen said, and do not hold their sins against them. This is a prayer our Lord Jesus was pleased to answer. For in verse 58, we see a man named Saul watching the garments of those murdering Stephen with stones. Saul was possibly one of the debaters with Stephen from the synagogue. And he was probably one of those who heard Stephen's words as he debated with the Jewish leaders. In light of this, the first phrase of chapter 8 is very significant. And Saul approved of his execution. Immediately after this statement, Saul sets out to ravage and destroy the church. But the Lord Jesus will soon meet him on the road to Damascus. In that meeting, Jesus will not only forgive Saul, but commission him to take the gospel to the nations for which which Stephen lived and died. The seed of the gospel going to the ends of the world have been planted by Stephen as a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in conclusion, I drove by a church on Friday. It's called Stephen the Martyr. Inside the church, there's a tabernacle, a shiny metal box with a lock on the front that this church teaches contains the real presence of Christ. That Christ really dwells there in this church called Stephen the Martyr. You see, the error of the Jews regarding the temple is still with us. We revere churches and cathedrals as a holy place. Stephen paid a heavy price standing up for the truth that God cannot be confined to a building made by hands. Stephen wanted us to be discontent, to be dissatisfied, to understand how inadequate and insufficient are the things made by our own hands as are the things that are the result of our own efforts. We as sinners are tempted to trust in our own selves in what we make and what we do, thinking we can earn righteousness with God by our good deeds. But we are sinners. I am a sinner. And the fact that I think I can be acceptable to God by the good things I do is a dangerous tendency that our sinful hearts love to pursue. We are attracted to the idea that I can do it myself. I can be acceptable before God. But salvation is exactly the opposite. I must trust in the righteous one, in Christ, not in me, not in my ways, not in the works of my hands. 
Stephen forces us to ask, am I trusting in God's promised Savior, Jesus Christ, alone? Or do I think my efforts to please God are what will save me or make Him pleased with me? Well, that is an eternally deadly mistake. After all, the whole point of Stephen's history lesson for us today has been to point out that those who felt the most confident in the temple, the most confident in the law, ended up crucifying the Lord Jesus. There must be true repentance and true faith in Christ alone if we are going to find ourselves with Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and Stephen in glory. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful to you for this magnificent sermon that Stephen preached. We admire the way in which this first Christian martyr defended the truth. Oh God, give us something of his disposition and spirit in our own day. We need it, Lord. We need it here at Omaha Bible Church. Oh God, if it should please you, mold us, shape us, and grow us into followers of Christ like Stephen, who have a zeal for the Lord and for your truth and for your gospel. If there are some here, Lord, who have never believed in Christ, we ask that you will, through the Holy Spirit, be con- bring conviction and conversion to their hearts. For Jesus' name we pray. Amen.